John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing on our thoughts and meditations this morning, Lord. Please speak to our hearts as we once again contemplate our Messiah in the manger and all that that means for our lives today. Thank you for its repercussions and its implications for our lives, how dramatic they are and how powerful they are in our understanding of you and in our relationship with you. And Lord, it's that that we want to develop and we want to expand here this morning. Please work in our hearts, teach us by your spirit, fill our hearts with love and adoration for you, and help us to be able to trust you more as a result of being here today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. What does 7-Eleven, Frontier Airlines, Choice Hotels, Marco's Pizza, the city of Cincinnati, Norwegian Cruise Lines, NASCAR, Subway, and Mack Trucks all have in common? Well, the CEO of each of these organizations has participated in an episode of Undercover Boss. Undercover Boss is a TV show that stars the CEO of a given company. He or she dresses incognito. Some disguises are a major transformation. I mean, the boss goes from designer suits to work overalls, from occupying that corner office to driving a delivery truck. He usually takes an entry-level position in the company he created, and he works alongside folks that he ultimately manages. The goal is for the boss to gain a ground-level perspective. The undercover boss begins to see what it's really like to work in his own company, what the organization truly values, and how it actually treats its employees and its customers. The show first aired on CBS in 2010. In 2022, it completed its 11th season, but the very first episode of Undercover Boss actually goes back a lot further than 2010. How about 4 B.C.? Outside the fields of Bethlehem, the first Christmas could have been the pilot for Undercover Boss. The CEO of the universe took an entry-level position in his creation. The Almighty God came to earth a baby. And the transformation that that boss underwent was far more stunning than anything that the TV show has ever dreamed up. God left his palatial mansion in heaven to dress in the likeness of a mortal man. The eternal spirit became flesh and blood and bone. And of all humans, Jesus took the form of the smallest, most vulnerable, and most defenseless. The boss of creation came as an infant. Here's a unique truth our God has a birthday. He does. The boss became a babe. You know, it's easy for me to imagine God appearing as a thunderbolt, oh, slicing a stormy sky with a violent zap, demanding the world's attention, or coming to earth as a celestial fireball, spinning 
and filling the heavens with glory and humanity with fear or showing up in the night sky as a mysterious moonbeam, an eerie light piercing the darkness, arousing our curiosity. We can all conceptualize God coming to earth in some sizzling, extravagant, eye-catching, awe-inspiring demonstration of nature. But in swaddling clothes? Who would have thunk it? God became human. He came to earth incognito. The Almighty, our creator and sustainer, walked our streets dressed as one of us. The undercover boss came to the manger. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 14 here, the apostle speaks of Jesus as the Word. Or in the original Greek language, the Logos. The word logos was a technical term used by the Greek philosophers to define ultimate truth and meaning. You see, the Greek people, they noticed an order and a symmetry within nature. They concluded that nature must have had a master plan. There had to be some kind of logic behind the natural universe. A logos behind the cosmos, a reason behind reality. Reminds me of the frustrated fellow who made the comment... Life must go on. I just forgot why. This was the Greeks. They realized there had to be a purpose. They just had no idea what it was. They assumed the logos was an impersonal force. The why was a what. But John surprises his readers here. The why is not a what, but a who. The logos is a person. Jesus is the word. And realize the implication, Jesus is not just the reason for the season. He is the reason behind all of life. There is no meaning or purpose apart from our Lord Jesus. In the first chapter of this gospel, the Apostle John astonishes his readers by referring to Jesus as the Word. But then he makes an even more provocative statement that has baffled philosophers for centuries. In verse 14 he writes, And the Word became flesh. God's logos, His revelation, became a man. The unified theory of physics, the ultimate end-all, the rationale behind reality, the logic behind all of our living, the answer to every question came to us as a baby. Imagine this. The logos played with Legos. You know, we Christians, we use an expression to describe what happened. We say incarnate, which means in the flesh. Incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. Just this past week, my wife Kathy, she made an excellent bowl of chili con carne. My favorite kind of chili. Chili that contains meat, that has some flesh in it. That's what I like. Jesus is God incarnate. He's God In human skin, in Jesus, God joined the human family. He became fully human, and in doing so, subjected himself to the full range of human emotion and human experience. Jesus walked our streets and ate our food and wore our clothes and learned our customs. Our Lord Jesus lived life in the trenches. Jesus became a human being to the same degree that you and I are human beings. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Author Max Lucado, he describes practically what this must have included. He says, God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God came near. Mary changed his diapers. The Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. It could be that his knees were bony. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was tempted. He got colds, burped, and had body odor. He snored, blew his nose, and hit his thumb with his hammer. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. For 33 years, he felt everything you and I have ever felt. And you know, by the look on some of your faces, I'm not sure you agree. I know the feeling. It sounds a little irreverent for us to say, God blew his nose. We don't often picture the Lord of glory going to the bathroom, or his feet swelling, or his nose bleeding, or his body sweating, or him getting hungry and thirsty. Our theology is somehow inadequate. It's reluctant to account for the fact that the Son of God soiled his diapers. Yet that is precisely the Jesus that the New Testament portrays. The Messiah in the manger of Bethlehem was totally divine, but equally so, he was totally human. If you still doubt this picture of Jesus, let me reel off a few scriptures that you can jot down and chew on later. In John 4, verse 6, Jesus got tired. In Matthew 4, verse 2, Jesus was hungry. John 19, verse 28, he grew thirsty. Matthew 8, 24, he slept. Hebrews 2, verse 18, he was tempted. Mark 3, verse 5, he got angry. Luke 22, verse 44, he perspired. And in John 11, verse 35, Jesus even wept. You know, there were people in the first century who were also uncomfortable with this concept of a truly human Jesus. In fact, they twisted their theology because they couldn't handle his humanity. Some people taught that Jesus didn't really have a human body, that his body was an illusion, that he was a phantom or a ghost or perhaps an apparition. These folks told fanciful tales of Jesus walking on the beach and leaving no footprints in the sand. Others said that the divine Christ came upon the human Jesus at his baptism, and yet departed before his crucifixion. But the two were not the same. In fact, a 5th century heretic ultimately excommunicated from the church, a man named Nestorius. He couldn't accept our Lord's humanity. Nestorius infamously said, I could not call a baby two or three months old God. Much of the New Testament was written to confront and correct the heresies that watered down Jesus' humanness. You remember John, who lived three and a half years with Jesus. He began his letter, his first epistle, by saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. See, John wanted everyone to know that he and his friends had touched Jesus. He was real. He had 
grabbed Jesus' arm to lead him through the crowd. Like any group of guys, I'm sure the disciples and Jesus had tussled by the campfire. The disciples saw smoke come out of his mouth and his nose on a cold day. They saw sweat under his robe after a long walk. When Jesus held out his hand to lift the lame man, his hand was obviously something that that man could grip. Don't tell Peter a ghost rescued him from drowning in the lake. The hand that grabbed him was strong and real. In fact, don't tell any of the disciples that Jesus' body was an illusion. They had all literally touched Jesus, and Jesus had literally touched them. Jesus was no phantom. There was meat on his bones. Peter also addresses this vital doctrine in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, where he states that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. The divine Christ didn't somehow split from the human Jesus just before the crucifixion. No, it was God incarnate who died on the Roman cross. Messiah's divinity and humanity are two characteristics of one person, not of two different people. It's mind-boggling to contemplate, but the man who died on Calvary's cross was the God who created the wood from which those cross beams were carved. The iron from which those nails were formed were created by the man who hung there and was attached to the cross by those nails. Even the men who viciously hammered in those nails had been created By the God who hung there. And 1 John 4 verses 2 and 3 concludes. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. You see the disciples and the early church believed so strongly in the humanity of Jesus. That they made it the litmus test for an orthodox faith. To early Christians, it was as crucial to believe that Jesus was a man as it was for them to believe that he was God. Not only was the baby in the manger God, he was also man. And this doctrine of the dual nature of Christ was settled once and for all at the Council of Chalcedon. In 451 AD, a group of church leaders and Bible scholars, they gathered in what is today Istanbul, to work out a declaration on the nature of Christ. They issued a doctrinal statement which has never been improved. They said, following the Holy Fathers, we confess with one voice that the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. He is of one substance with the Father as God. He is also of one substance with us as man. He is like us in all things except sin. And I'm sure we all would agree with that statement of faith. We'd sign it. Hopefully we would fight for it. But for most of us, it's a lot more comfortable. We are a lot more comfortable with the deity of Jesus than we are with his humanity. For there is something about keeping Jesus divine that keeps him comfortably distant. See, his royalty seems far removed from our reality. And yet the more human we can see Jesus, the more relevant he becomes to our struggles. 
when it dawns on us that Jesus walked in our shoes and shared our predicament. We can no longer dismiss his promises. We can no longer ignore his commands. The Jesus who challenges us to love him more than friends and family and follow him regardless of the cost is the same Jesus who kissed his mother goodbye in the door of a carpenter's shop and left home to do the will of his Father in heaven. The Jesus who said, love your enemies, is the Jesus who hung on a cross in excruciating pain and there prayed for God to forgive those who had conspired against him. The Jesus who encourages us to lay down treasure, lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven is the very same Jesus who died wearing only the robe that the only robe that he wore, he owned, and was buried in a borrowed tomb. The Jesus who warns us that it's a sin to even look after a woman, to lust after her in our heart, was the same red-blooded man who lived into his 30s and overcame the certain sexual temptations that were thrown at him. And the Jesus who instructs us to deny ourselves and to serve others is the same man who laid aside the comforts of heaven to be born in a smelly stable. The humanity of Jesus strips away my excuses. It's now impossible for me to take refuge in the assumption, God just doesn't understand, or that's easy for him to say. You can't say that when you realize that Jesus was as human as we are. If all you're after in a God is a little icon that you can set on the mantle of your life, or a God to whom you can pay occasional homage, or a God you can show off to your friends to prove how religious you are, a mascot rather than a master, then you don't want the God incarnate. You want a way off, up there, somewhere kind of God. You need a God you can keep at a distance that can be worshipped amid the smell of incense and stained glass, yet removed from your everyday life. For the God-man is too real. He's too close to home. Jesus, his humanity makes him too relevant for some people. He's an invader they can't keep out of the privacy of their real life. See, he's been where you're at. He knows what you're going through. He feels what you feel, and he's closer to you than you think. As one author writes, let Christ be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. To those who understand Christ's humanity as well as his deity, the incarnate invader becomes a comfort and a hope. What is an encroachment to some folks ends up an encouragement to others. The incarnation will scare you if you want to live your life on your own. But if you're leaning on Jesus, it becomes your greatest solace. When I realize that Jesus has been where I'm at, I can trust him with my feelings, in my heart, in my fears, in my hurts, in my hopes, in my ambitions, in my weaknesses, in my frailties. He's faced them all before. He's conquered all that I'm struggling with today. He can heal because he has hurt. Jesus is the friend that I can trust because he knows what it's like to need a friend. He can untangle temptation because he's overcome it in his own life. Theologian Helmut Thielich, he once wrote of our human plight. He said, man is told of a loving father above the starry skies. 
He thinks of him up there in some monumental headquarters while he sits in a foxhole somewhere on this isolated front, somewhere on this trash heap, working at a stupid job that gives him misery. What does he get out of it when he's told, there is a supreme intelligence that conceived the creation of the world, devised the law of cause and effect, and maneuvered the planets into their orbits? All he can say to that is, well, you don't say, and then go on reading his newspaper or turn on the television. For that certainty is not a message by which he can live. But if someone says, there is someone who knows you, who grieves when you go your own way, and it cost him something to be the star to which you can look, the staff by which you can walk, the spring from which you can drink. When a man realizes this is true, really true, that someone is interested in him and shares his lot, then this can suddenly revolutionize his life. The incarnation means that God has become man and that I am no longer in darkness. In 1959, a northern journalist, John Griffin, he decided to discover what life was like to be a black man living in the South. Remember, this was 1959. At first, he thought of touring the region as an observer, but he knew that that would limit his perspective. Instead, he changed his skin color. He actually became black. Griffin took oral medications, and he used sunlamp treatments. He even dyed the pigment of his skin with various types of stains. And then he traveled across the South and tasted firsthand the horrors of racial prejudice. John Griffin experienced up close and personal the plight of African Americans at the time. And he ended up publishing his findings in a book called Black Like Me. Well, Jesus became a man like me. He put on my skin. He dressed as a human like me and like you so he could understand firsthand our difficulties and our hardships. When you observe a person's plight from a distance, you feel some sympathy. But sympathy isn't empathy. See, true empathy is participation in that person's feelings. Empathy has been defined as your pain in my heart. To really feel what another person feels, you have to get close. You have to get individually involved. Recently, I read about the aged man suit. Have you heard about this? The aged man suit? It's a suit designed to simulate the physical consequences of old age. So that the 20-something-year-old medical students can develop genuine empathy for the 75-year-old senior citizens that they'll treat throughout their career. Well, this age man suit consists of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish colors, a helmet that makes the head heavy and causes dizziness, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket which presses uncomfortably against the chest, and padded gloves. The suit weighs a little over 20 pounds. And when a new student straps on the suit for the first time, Dr. Rachel Eckert says, welcome to old age. She explains, my aim is to turn young, energetic people into slow, creaking beings, temporarily at least, 
That way they will, I hope, develop a feeling for what it's like to be old. She believes there's a huge disconnect between large sections of the medical profession and their elderly patients. She goes on to say, rather than a PowerPoint, this is the best way of giving them a real idea of what it's like to be old. And once we have their empathy, we can begin to win students round to becoming interested in old people as patients. I say, what a great idea. And God had a similar idea when Jesus came to earth. But the Almighty took it one step further. Rather than a suit that simulates the human condition, Jesus became human himself. The timeless God took on a human life from ground up, as a baby no less, then as a child and as an adolescent, and ultimately as an adult. Rabbi, Rabbi Elliot Kukla, he tells of a woman he met who would often fall on the floor. She had suffered a brain injury that caused her to lose her balance at times. And whenever it happened, she said people to ru would rush alongside her to help her up. They tried to get her to her feet, though, before she was ready. The woman told the rabbi, I think people rush to help me up because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. And you see, this is what Jesus did. Before he tried to raise us back to our feet, he first joined us on the ground. Reminds me too of King Abdullah, the reigning monarch of the country of Jordan. Shortly after he was crowned, he slipped out of the palace wearing a fake beard and tattered robes and a traditional Jordanian headscarf. He visited a branch of his nation's income tax department to see how firsthand, see firsthand how common citizens were being treated as they tried to pay their taxes. Abdullah realized before he could improve his government services, he had to try them out for himself from ground level. And so the king got in line. And this is what Jesus did. The king got in line. The king took a number. The king declined the special treatment that most folks would have afforded him. He rebuffed the privileges of royalty. He embraced the common man's starting point. Before Jesus stood us up, he joined us on the ground. It wasn't enough for the Son of God to observe the human dilemma from his lofty perch in heaven. We're told in our text, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means to pitch a tent. Jesus pitched his tent. God camped out among us. I love how the message paraphrase renders verse 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God came to the hood. The sovereign God got down on our level. He joined our predicament. God in Christ now shoulders our sufferings. He shares our plight to lead us out. God stepped out of heaven and slipped into our shoes. And as a result, he understands our predicament in a new way. Since the incarnation, God now cries and laughs with us, not just at us. God weeps now when we weep. He smiles when we smile. He bleeds when we bleed. 
Years ago, my son Nick, he played in this big soccer game. He was just a little tyke. But his undefeated team played the league's other undefeated team. Nick lined up that game in the goalie. He was the goalie, which meant the whole season was sort of riding on his shoulders. The pressure was on. And I literally played that entire game alongside my son. I squatted when he squatted. I lunged when he lunged. I turned when he turned. You should have seen me on the sidelines. I mean, I was animated. Kathy thought I'd lost my mind. I've been in those kind of competitive situations myself, and I could feel exactly what Nick felt. And this is how Jesus reacts today when he sees you under pressure. He's felt that same stress. He knows where you're at. He knows exactly what you're feeling, and he's right there mimicking your movements. He's bending and moving and reacting with you as you work through your dilemma. He's there for you. Hebrews 2 expresses this truth. In all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That Greek word translated aid, it literally means to run to the cry of a child. When Jesus sees you hurt, he races to your side. He's known the same pain. For Jesus to shoulder our burdens at first required, he experienced them himself. How could someone help me with a bu- my busy day if he's never had a busy day of his own? How could someone who's never felt stress himself help me cope with mine? How can someone who's never lost a loved one console me in my grief? Understand the Christian's marching orders don't come from a heavenly bureaucrat who's never been to combat, but from a battle-scarred general fresh from the front. Jesus is the veteran who's experienced the enemy's fire, and he knows well now the keys to victory. There's an Italian movie that opens with a helicopter ferrying a giant concrete statue of Jesus to the city of Rome. The copter flies over the landscape as this giant Jesus sort of hangs from a sleeve under the helicopter with his arms outstretched. At one point, a farmer spots the statue. He glances up at the sky and he shouts, Look, it's Jesus! He hops off his tractor and he follows the statue across his field. As the helicopter moves closer to the city of Rome, it passes over a swimming pool full of bikini-clad girls. The copter pilot swoops lower to get a closer look. The airborne concrete Jesus just sort of hangs there from the helicopter over it all, unmoved, expressionless. And there are people who envision the real Jesus as this concrete Jesus. He's huge and heavy. He seems to lack empathy. He hovers over us with no expression and no emotion. He appears to be on the outside looking in. Jesus appears judgmental and removed and distant. What does the God in heaven know about the trials that I face? But Christmas forever dispels these notions. Jesus is no concrete Christ. He's one of us. He feels and he cares and he hurts. It's been said, Jesus was love wrapped in skin. 
John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 tell us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The humanity of Jesus revealed to mankind a side of God previously hidden from view. You see, in the Old Testament, people saw God at a distance. They had to squint over a huge gulf called the law and through a thick fog called sin. And as a result, their view of God was blurred. Oh, they saw God's character, but it was embodied in a standard of behavior. But due to their sin, that standard was really all that they saw. They never saw past God's impeccable purity. They concluded that God was the staunch judge. He might be willing to forgive them, but he sure didn't want their fellowship. He was more into rules than he was into relationship. In the Old Testament, man could see that God was immense, but we concluded from that that he was cold and impersonal. Yet that was not the God that Jesus revealed. The God whose glory fills the universe is the man who let children play in his lap. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews could see that God was powerful. But they assumed that God exercised that power in cruel, in tyrannical ways. But again, that was certainly not the God Jesus revealed. For the hands that hung the heavens now healed the sick and fed the hungry multitudes and even washed his disciples' feet. The Jews also thought of God as too perfect to approach. They thought that because God was sinless, he'd want to condemn those who weren't. But that was not the God that Jesus revealed to us. For when the woman taken in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet, instead of handing down a sentence, he gave her a new start. See, Jesus put God in the 10x mirror. And ladies, you know what it means. When you look into that 10x mirror, when you see yourself under 10 times magnification, whoa, Nellie, what you see is really what you get now. The real you gets blown up. But with God, this is the perspective that we need. In Jesus, we see God unobstructed by sin and legalism. We see him fresh and in a new light. We see the heart of God. And what we see is a God of grace and truth. The true God is not content to stay separated from sinners. He's ever reaching across the aisle. He's ever stretching out over the canyon. God is pleading with us. He's willing to forgive us. And he wants fellowship with us. Jesus reveals a God who cares not only about holiness, but about humans God would never allow his law to thwart his love. Jesus was the way God satisfied both. Grace is an expression of his love. <clears throat> Truth satisfied God's law. And Jesus was full of both grace and truth. The incarnation proves forever that God is a touchable God. He wants to touch us. And he has made a way for us to touch him. In Jesus, God is never out of reach. 
Look at the two poles of Messiah's life, the crib and the cross. How low can love stoop but a crib? How far can love stretch but a cross? At either end of Jesus' life, you find him stooping and stretching to touch us. Hey, we all need the stimulus of touch, don't we? Pediatricians report that babies that are not cuddled and cradled in warm arms don't grow healthy and psychologically whole. It's proven that babies need their mother's touch. And likewise, we too need to feel the touch of God. You know, the storm outside, it grew intense when the little girl's quivering voice called to her mom in the other room, Mommy, I'm scared. The mom walked into her room. She said, don't worry, honey. God will be with you. To which the little girl replied, okay, you stay here with God, but I'm going to go sleep with Daddy. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to be touched, don't we? We need a God we can touch. And Jesus is a touchable God. And while on earth, our Lord Jesus did a lot of touching. Recall how often Jesus touched someone or was touched by someone. Matthew 14 sums up a typical day in Jesus' life. They came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly well. On another occasion, a woman who'd been hemorrhaging for years touched the hem of his garment, the hem of his robe, and was healed. Jesus touched the eyes of a blind man, and his eyes could miraculously see. Jesus even touched untouchables, and he healed people with leprosy. Remember the woman with the seedy reputation who came to Jesus at the house of Simon the Pharisee? She washed Jesus' feet with her hair and with her tears. The Pharisee that day, he frowned on her display. He looked down his nose at this sinful woman. In Luke 7 we read, the Pharisee spoke within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And that Pharisee was right. Jesus knew what kind of woman was touching him. But thank God Jesus is willing to be touched by that kind of woman. Our Lord is willing to be touched by sinners. When Mary laid her infant son into the manger, the soft pink skin of her newborn baby invited those around the crib to touch him. The whispers and coos of the contented baby coaxed those looking on around the manger to cuddle him and hold him. And those invitations have never ceased. We are still invited to come and touch Jesus. Today, you, you can reach out in faith and touch Jesus. And in doing so, you can find peace for a troubled soul and healing for a sick body and cleansing for a dirty mind. And love for an abandoned life. And strength for a fearful heart. And hope for an uncertain future. Touch Jesus. And let him touch you. And you'll find everything you need. Here's what Christmas is all about. 
God is touchable. Christmas could well have been the first episode of Undercover Boss. The boss of all creation took an entry-level position and occupied a lowly manger. This Christmas, look closely in that manger. God is in that manger. But just as amazingly, God is a man. 